I'm Jay Novella, and you're listening to the European Skeptics Podcast, the real ESP experience. You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent bi-weekly show in support of European-level actions within the skeptical movement. The ESP is run by individuals representing different skeptical groups from across the continent. This is episode number seven. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Jelena Lavin and Pontus Böckmann. Sziasztok! Всем привет! Hey, Sanalio! Here we are again, right? Yeah. Only one week after releasing the last episode. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So we are... Okay, we cheated a bit. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was more of an interview episode. But the plan is to go on with our show in the form of having weekly episodes. But a kind of a rotational structure to them. This way, we'll have something to give our listeners to download and listen to every week. Very Which good. Which is great, right? So this week, we have a regular episode, only without a long interview. Uh, well, enough of the technical stuff. Let's see what feedback we've got. It seems we're back to normal so, after yeah. the holiday season. Yeah, mm-hmm. we started started to get feedback again, which is great. Yeah. We love getting feedback. Yes, few e- keep few it coming. Emails, yeah, a few emails and a few comments on the website. Um, so we've received an email from Bethany uh, Dillerman, um, who uh, heard about us f- from Reality Check podcast. We appreciate that a lot. Thank you, guys. And thanks, Bethany, for writing to us. And um, she also actually suggested um, a new a piece of news that we're going to be covering on this episode about a vaccination crisis in Ukraine. So later on, uh, I'll be talking about that. We also got a, an email from uh, Joachim Jentoft, who sent us an article about religious prosecution in Norway. So we're going to talk about that a little bit later on. And I, I think it was it was also him who approached us on Twitter about, yeah, one of my comments on episode five, when I casually made a comment about going to the gym being the best way to lose weight, mm-hmm. uh, when I, I was reflecting to Yelena's comment oh, that, yes, that he, she, she was not joining those millions to the gym as part of the New Year resolution. <laughs> yeah, so, and here comes the part I love the best about skeptics. He drew our attention to BBC News article from uh, April 2015 that published a statement from several doctors about this notion that working out is the best way to tackle obesity and how it was actually a myth. I I made a casual statement and he corrected me in a way. So I decided to do some quick research into the topic and later on I'm going to be talking about this on the show. Mm. (laughs) Um, We have also received um, an email from Chris Shelton. Um, He contacted us uh, from America regarding the Scientology um, book that he recently wrote. He's actually uh, been part of the Scientology church for a a long time until he escaped. So we'll be interviewing Chris um, at some point later on and we'll announce that on the show. Um, Meanwhile, uh, stay tuned and um, thank you, Chris, for uh, getting in touch. It's always great to hear the perspective of somebody who was inside such a religious cult as Scientology uh, and get an insight on what's going on in there. 
Yeah, and um, we're looking forward to hearing more about what's going on in that sense around Europe. And we've got two fairly similar kinds of uh, feedback from from two people. One of them uh, is uh, Denis Santer, and the other one is none other than Gabo Rosko, whom we had the privilege to interview on our first episode. So both of them wrote the kindest words about us. Vanis um, hasn't revealed too much about himself, but but of course Gabor is the leading figure of the Hungarian Skeptic Movement. Um, he's uh, the president of the Hungarian Skeptic Society and chairman of the European Council of Skeptical Organizations as well. They told us we were becoming their number one podcast to listen to. Mm. Woohoo! Good. Which is absolutely amazing. Yeah, I know Gabor knows us, so I would assume that that is something in our favor. Still, it means a lot, especially to me, because I consider him kind of my mentor in skepticism. And I know he's crazy about podcasts and, and he listens to lots of podcasts. Uh, that means a lot to me. But in Dennis's case, for a different reason, it also means so much. I don't know about you guys, but I feel very honored. So what I'm going to say now, I'm saying to all our listeners, folks, we love you. <laughs> love your thoughts okay okay let's move on before somebody starts crying here now it really means a lot yeah and it really means a lot to all of us so if you have something in your mind don't hesitate to go online and let us know you can always get in touch with us uh, via email which is uh, info at the esp dot eu uh, we're also on twitter at espodcast underscore eu and of course we've got a website theesp.eu and you can find us on facebook and like our page and like all our posts and comments and leave your own definitely thank you very much so let's see what we have lined up for today we're off to a good start i think as usual with yelena who's going to tell us about yet another interesting person with relevance to European skeptics, born on the 27th of January. Then we're going to try and cover events we know of that might be of interest to skeptics around Europe. And from there, we're going to move on to talking about some skepticism-related stuff from across Europe as well, a few things hot and or interesting. As we've recently made the decision of making separate episodes out of our feature interviews, we are not having any on this episode, but we're going to have a shorter segment dedicated to Pontus's recent encounter with one of the best-known personalities in the international skeptic movement. If I remember his name well, that's Jay Novella, right? Sure. (laughs) Great guy, great guy. Yeah, he's going to talk about their uh, special skeptics in the pub in Malmö. Uh, titled An Evening with Jay Novella. Really looking forward to that. After this, Yana comes back to enlighten us about another logical fallacy. This time it is something in the border of logical fallacies and this kind of errors and mistakes in our arguments that is unfalsifiability. That will be followed by our short interview, yet another one with me reporting from Wikipedia Science Conference, this time talking to Brian Kelly, who gave a talk about policies and guidelines to resolve conflicts of interest regarding uh, publishers and Wikipedia editors. Uh, Then Pontus will discuss certain things in Europe that are really wrong. There's no end to these, apparently. (laughs) So Pontus keeps bringing them on. When that's done, 
Yalana will test our abilities to spot a false statement against true ones again. That's our true or false segment, something we always look forward to. Let's see which one of us falls in her trap this time. Then, of course, she will have a nice quote for us to finish the show with. And that's what we have lined up for you today. Hope you'll enjoy the show. Let's get started. So, Yelena, please tell us whose birthday this is, the 27th of January, and why is that person relevant to skeptics? Okay, um, so on 27th of January 1950, Derek Francis Johnson, later known as Derek Akora, was born. And he describes himself as a spirit medium. Now, when he was just 13 years old, Akora fulfilled boyhood ambition to be a footballer when he signed for Wrexham Football Club as an apprentice. However, his football career didn't last. And in 2001, uh, he was asked to feature in a new British television program called Haunting Truth. And it was subsequently sold to Living, it's a program, uh, and renamed Most Haunted. And I'm sure a few of our listeners will know what Most Haunted was. It was quite a popular program um, uh, on British television. And um, they would go into the houses and it would normally be dark and there would normally be some spirits flying in the dark and some sounds and bumps and noises. And he was part of that show for a long time, for, for a few years. So... He um, states that he's got a help. Uh, it's a spirit guide. His spirit guide called Sam, uh, who helps him uh, perform his medium duties and connect to the uh, uh, the other world, the world of dead. And uh, Sam is from apparently Ethiopia. However, when I've tried to get some more information about this Sam spirit guide, all I could find was the uh, website called Sam Excellent Ethiopian Adventures, uh, which is actually about an actual person who, uh, you know, does tours in Ethiopia. Um, so he's got uh, his own website, of course, where you can get your um, video chat uh, with psychics reading for just a mere 75p per minute. And he made some really bold claims and statements in his time. So some of you might be aware of the case of Madeleine McCain. Mm. Uh, she was a little girl who got missed, uh, who went missing in Portugal years ago. And the, her family was trying to find and raise awareness. And uh, there was a big campaign. He then claimed later on, and not so long ago actually, that he now been contacted by the spirit of the girl and he knows that she's no longer alive and she'll be reincarnated shortly. However, he issued a statement to say uh, after uh, a certain amount of time, he's been pressured into issuing a statement to say that uh, he is mistaken and he's apologized to the family of, um, of Madeline. He also claimed to have tried to establish contact with um, Michael Jackson after his death as well. Yeah, so he, he kind of <laughs> your regular, well, not regular, but, um, uh, you know, self-proclaimed medium and, and psychic. So he's, st- he's still uh, doing really well, even though after his, his claims been debunked a few times um, in press. And um, it was said uh, that... His performance in Most Haunted was not, nothing more but um, 
acting and set up. But I guess people want to believe. And as long as there are people who want to believe and, you know, fall for this kind of thing, people like Derek will, you know, go on making money. But also, I think... I guess I don't mind when people saying they they feel this or they feel the other and, uh, you know, they can they make statements about the future. But what I do oppose a lot about is the fact that he obviously uh, feeds off of the uh, people who are vulnerable and uh, grieving and uh, in a state um, hmm. that's not, you know, and that, that causes a lot of unnecessary pain and anguish to people. So and I, I completely oppose to that. But, um, yeah, we should call out this kind of bullshit when we see it, really, and unite against it. <laughs> so there yeah. we go. Um, I'm, I'm wondering, how much of a big thing is uh, psychics in other countries? Because we hear a lot about psychics in the US and um, in the United Kingdom. Yeah. But um, not necessarily from other countries. So I would I would like to ask listeners' opinions on that, and 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 what's the situation in their countries in terms of uh, of uh, psychic readers and 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 people who claim that they can talk to their dead and are they used in criminal cases and and stuff? So it's it's it would be nice to know. Yeah. But this very is this is just ridiculous. All right. Um. Thank you very much, Yelena. My pleasure. And let's move on to our overview of uh, events around Europe. First of all, I'd like to talk about something that I might be attending very soon, which is the 27th of uh, January, and that is going to be in Eastbourne. The Eastbourne Skeptics in the Pub will have a very interesting talk with a very interesting person we've already interviewed on the show, and that is Michael Marshall from the Good Thinking Society. And he's going to be talking about homeopathy on the NHS and what we can do about it. So really looking forward to that. But I believe on the 27th, there's going to be lots going on. Yeah. So there is going to be a um, um, Skeptics in the Pub meeting in Tenerife as well. It's a Skeptica LN Pub, if I'm not uh, mistaken. <laughs> uh, and the, the theme for the uh, meeting will be Adventures and Misadventures of an Ex-Magufo. What is that? Uh, apparently, it's somebody who used to believe in um, uh, UFOs and all things woo and no longer does. Oh, okay. And uh, the, it will be presented by Juanjo Martin. Nice. It's <laughs> a nice place, Tenerife. <laughs> we should go. Yeah, we should go. Go go and join them <laughs> for, for Skeptics in the Pub. There is another one on the 27th, which is Skeptiku Shoka Shurazuben, Székesfehérváron. Uh, yeah, that's 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 Hungarian. <laughs> <laughs> that is very exciting to me, because that is an event, uh, Skeptics in the Pub in Székesfehérvár, which is my hometown, and that is an event that I brought to life. I started uh, organizing it almost two years ago, and uh, now that I I left Hungary a little while ago. A very nice person called uh, Gabor Sukhest, um took on uh, the task of organizing these events. And uh, now he's really into um, activating people and trying to get something done as well. So this gathering is going to be about how to start doing stuff to stop 
doctors, for example, who are using and promoting homeopathy, put the information about them out that they are promoting quackery. So the the title is very nice. Um, it, it refers back to to the recent big hit um, in the movies, in the movie theaters, which is Star Wars The Force Awakens. And the title in Hungarian, Nechokos Erui Bredjen, which translates to It Shouldn't Be Only The Force That Awakens. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, skeptics in Hungary and everywhere else, go and awaken. The day after that, on the 28th of January, we go to Switzerland and Zurich, where they have skeptics in the pub on the theme... Evolution is only a theory, right? Uh, <laughs> right. Or, or maybe wrong, but I will see what they come up with. Mm, good. Uh, sounds interesting. Zurich is a nice place as well. Mm. Um, just, um, I haven't been to Valencia, where there is another EEEP, which is Escepticos en el Pub, as um, Yelena uh, already told us. Um, so they're going to have a talk on a bit of a political side of things with the title Rajoy against Guapocracy. Guapo is a person who, who looks nice, a handsome person. And uh, Rajoy is uh, the prime minister of, uh, of Spain uh, at the moment. And uh, the, the, the topic will be about mediated politics and uh, the rise of political parties in the age of social media. So it's, it's an interesting thing. And it's very nice to see that, that skeptics are willing to take on political uh, topics as well, which is, which is very important, especially when we want to go on a European level and uh, try to do some lobbying and stuff. It's always good to, to think along uh, political lines as well. Um, okay, so then on the 29th of January, uh, there will be uh, the Hague Skeptics in the Pub meeting, and it's going to be a social, so it's just a gathering of people talking on various themes, just discussing uh, topics that they want to discuss. Um, so join them. Yeah, definitely. There is something else going on. Um, it's, I believe it's not possible to join them anymore. But I just want to mention that it's from Italy, from SICAP, the, the Italian Skeptical Organization, which is a huge thing, a huge initiative. And I, I really recommend that to everyone to, to, to check out the website that's going to be on the show notes, because it's a seven weekend course. It's, co- it's called Corso per Indicatori di Misteri, uh, which uh, translates to something like a course for the investigators of mysteries. So whoever is interested could subscribe to this course. And it starts on the 30th of January and finishes uh, on the 19th of June. So full weekends, and they are covering lots of different topics, how to investigate certain claims and certain certain problems uh, from, from within the realm of uh, uh, pseudosciences. And uh, people who are giving talks, uh, speakers and the workshop leaders will include lots of internationally known uh, Italian skeptics like... Um, Massimo Polidoro, Paolo Attivissimo, Luigi Garlaschelli, and the, the, the list goes on. So it's, it's a, an interesting thing. I hope they will have some kind of uh, video recording of the course as well, so that we can show that around to people and uh, people can 
get ideas from it so that other organizations can start similar programs. Mm. Very interesting thing. Yeah, it is. So on the 1st of February, Utrecht Free Thinkers in the pub, uh, there will be uh, a topic will be uh, CampQuest and they will have Samantha Stein there to talk about CampQuest. I think she's, uh, if not the founder, she's one of the founders of CampQuest, which is a great initiative. Uh, I suggest everyone checks out the link on the show notes. Yeah. Um, okay, on the 3rd of February, uh, there'll be the first ever woohoo, uh, Leipzig Skeptic Meeting. So if you're in, around or near Leipzig, come and join them for their first Skeptics Meeting. Yay, that's Germany. And on the 4th of February, uh, Ghent Skeptics in the pub have uh, the topic of advanced illusions. Sounds very intriguing. Mm -hmm. um, later on, on the 8th of February, there'll be an Amsterdam Skeptics in the pub. Um, and they'll be talking about the myths about GMOs. Very topical. Also on the 8th of February, my friends uh, in Copenhagen have the Skeptics in the pub uh, thing that they have every month. And this time it's going to be about fitness myths. I haven't visited them for over a year now, and I feel a bit guilty about that. But I, I really <laughs> need to go because they're always having great uh, uh, presenters on their on their uh, meetings. Yeah, and for God's sake, you are just a stone throw away from them. I have no right? excuse. It takes twenty <laughs> minutes on the on the on the train. Yeah. Okay. Never mind. Um, I think you, you, you've got the idea of how many things are going on in Europe, how much... It is amazing when you look at this list. It's, it, there are several things on, on the same day and almost something on, on every day for, yeah. for two weeks. And that's only what we already know about. Mm. There must be lots of skeptical events going on that we have no idea about so what we've come up with is the idea of putting together a european calendar of skeptical events i know there are similar uh, things on lanyard for example that is uh, following skeptical conferences as well but we want this calendar to be the one that everyone can use this is why we launched a new page on our website which is called Events in Europe. And we've already uh, published that on Facebook uh, with lots of feedback, and we are very, very happy about that. Uh, we've already uh, got some email as well telling us about events that are not necessarily in front of us and uh, we, we couldn't see them before. So please, if you have an event to promote, if you have something going on in your country that can be put on a calendar please let us know and we can share that with others across Europe. And uh, we've already got the feedback how inspirational it is to see the so many different things organized in different countries uh, in the neighborhood. So let's, let's do that. Let's, let's inspire others uh, to, to organize more and more events so that, as I, I said before, it's not only the force that awakens but but the skeptics as well uh, we are using a google calendar on the website uh that is public uh but be advised that uh the time zone is set to central european time but if you are not within that time zone be advised that it shows the exact times of the events in cet 
All right, anything else to say about this? No. Nothing, does it? Keep letting us know about things going on and we'll put it in our calendar. They can find us on the ESP.eu website or Twitter uh, at ESPodcast underscore EU or email info at theesp.eu. That's right. Write to us, people. Thank you very much, guys. Get in touch. Let's move on to an overview of what's hot in Europe in terms of topics. So, here's a highly controversial issue. Uh, obesity. I mentioned a listener feedback at the beginning of the show um, that um, triggered my interest to find out more about this widely debated area. Uh, but I think it might be a good idea to make clear how big the problem is in the first place. According to the World Health Organization's latest European Health Report, issued in uh, September 2015 that uh, covers 53 countries, obesity is, quote, one of the greatest public health challenges of the 21st century. They then go on to state that it drastically increases a person's risk of uh, developing several diseases, including cardiovascular problems, cancer and diabetes, uh, to name only a few. According to the report, 58.6% of Europeans are overweight and 23% are considered obese. Now, it is all based on BMI or uh, body mass index. Uh, that is calculated as your weight in kilograms uh, divided by the square of your height in meters. One is considered overweight with a BMI of uh, 25 or higher, and if it goes over 30, uh, you're basically obese. I think we all agree that 58.6% of the population to be overweight is really high. Of course, I'm consciously avoiding the word huge here. Um, so the, the WHO and governmental health institutions across Europe are making great efforts to find ways to tackle the problem. So the question remains, is working out the best way to fight obesity, as we are so often told to be the case? Well, according to an internally peer-reviewed editorial in the British Journal of Sports Medicine, the answer is no. It was this article that was referenced in the BBC News piece that uh, Jen Toft was kind enough to send us on Twitter. We will, of course, link to these articles and others mentioned here in the show notes. The title of this editorial says the opinion of the authors right away. As it goes, It is time to bust the myth of physical inactivity and obesity. You cannot outrun a bad diet. They sort of elaborate on this a bit, uh, but there was another paper in the International Journal of Epidemiology with the following title. Physical activity does not influence obesity risk. Time to clarify the public health message. What's really phenomenal is how much controversy this, this latter article stirred up. Countless commentaries followed on the pages of the International Journal of Epidemiology. Interestingly... There was harsh criticism from researchers affiliated to companies like Coca-Cola and McDonald's through research grants and being on advisory boards for these companies. So this is how they are affiliated with these companies. It is really not cool, I think, that debates are affected by these affiliations as there is a lot at stake here. So this is, this is some kind of a, a public health issue. 
In a former article cited by the BBC, the authors specifically mentioned Coca-Cola and how they spent $3.3 billion on advertising in 2013, trying to spread the message that if you do exercise, you're good to consume loads of sugary drinks. But are you really? There have been two reports issued by the UK's Academy of Medical Royal Colleges that were dealing with obesity and the effects of exercise. The first one, uh, Reducing Obesity Future Choices, that is usually referred to as a foresight report, is from October 2007. And the other one, with the slightly strange title Exercise the Miracle Cure, was issued in February 2015. Based on these reports that seem to be based on very thorough analysis of available scientific research data, it really seems some cautious statements can be made here. According to the report, UK population has a 25% lifetime risk of obesity and the widely recommended daily 30-minute exercise for 5 days a week seems to have reduced the risk with uh, 10%. But the report does find lots of beneficial health-related effects of that amount of exercise, which is properly acknowledged in the editorial BBC was citing. I'm quoting from the report. Whilst physical exercise only has a modest or moderate effect on weight loss without appropriate dietary restrictions, Arabic physical activity has a consistent effect in achieving weight maintenance. Exercise also changes the distribution of fat, By reducing abdominal fat, for some individuals the body weight may stay the same as muscle is built up, but the reduction in visceral fat is highly beneficial for health. Yeah, but what about those dietary restrictions? I think we can establish that within the general public there is virtually no basic understanding of human metabolic processes and how our digestive system functions. And that might be one of the reasons why those lose weight quacks, miracle diets, fitness gurus and and their often contradicting ideas are so popular despite lacking a sound scientific basis and often being outright full of nonsensical claims. What we do have to understand, and this is a simple idea, is that the question of gaining weight or losing it eventually boils down to the balance between our energy intake and expenditure the amount of we actually use for our bodily functions, among which, of course, one is physical activity. So, basically, the intake of sugar and starchy carbohydrates results in a quick elevation of blood sugar, and then hunger and appetite kicks in. Just as a result of having lots of insulin in your system, that is, releases a response to the increase in sugar in your blood, but not enough sugar input left to deal with since it's already gone, uh, thanks to the insulin. So consuming food that's richer in fat and proteins, on the other hand, things that are harder to digest and and thus take more time um, to to go through uh, the digestive system, will lead to satiety, the feeling that you're full and satisfied. So you won't want to take in more and more of it, uh, as you do with uh, simply consuming carbohydrates. And when you eat lots of sugar and you're not using it right away for for providing energy to your activities, your body starts building up its reserves in the form of glycogen stored in your uh, liver cells and muscles, 
and eventually fat, storing your fat tissues. That is a cool feature, by the way. Developed as a survival tool for for times when, when, when food was scarce in the old times. But what was advantageous for our early ancestors is not necessarily so in modern times, when energy-dense foods are readily available and sometimes even just a click away. You don't even have to get up and get it. You, you can order it online. So you don't have to make efforts, especially physical efforts, to get, the, get your food. On average, in every European country, we have an energy intake of well over 3,000 kilocalories per day per capita. Now, according to the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, the average minimum daily energy requirement per person is 1,800 kilocalories. And depending on which organization you ask, the recommended intake is between 2,100 and 2,800 kilocalories per day, depending on age, gender, and of course, lifestyle. But apparently, being sedentary... Uh, as opposed to physically more active, does not make a huge difference in your daily energy needs, which is kind of surprising, but uh, this, is, this is what it is. So what we can est- really establish here is that we are definitely overeating, at least in terms of calories. Okay, um, what is the conclusion then? Well, not being overweight, and what's more, obese, is definitely desirable if you want to live a healthy life. But if you want to lose weight, don't run to the gym first, uh, but make sure you are on a balanced diet that's preferably low on carbohydrates and rich in essential nutrients as well as fibers, and is at around the lower end of the recommended daily intake in terms of energy content. Then start doing moderate intensity physical exercise, for about 30 minutes a day, at least five times a week, that again will be highly beneficial to your health and will also help you maintain your weight. So thank you very much again, Gentoft, for sending us the, uh, the article and uh, drawing our attention to the question of whether obesity can be tackled with physical exercise. So, as we were alerted to by Joachim Jentoft, there is a um, storm of protests brewing regarding what's called religious persecution in Norway. Uh, so, we looked into that a little bit uh, further. And what, what, it, what it's all about is that there's a Romanian-Norwegian Pentecostal couple that has lost custody of their five children in Norway. And this has sparked uh, an international outrage among the religious Mm. community. There was a Romanian pastor who who started a big campaign on the internet. And he claims that he has gathered more than 50,000 signatures because he says that the children was taken away from this couple because of religious persecution. But the reason that the Child Protection Agency of Norway did this was that they were abusing their children. They were, they were punishing them uh, by hitting them, which is illegal in Norway. So it's not about religious persecution. It's about protecting children with parents that hits them and abuse them. But this is now blowing up uh, as a big religious controversy, but it's not about religion at all. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it doesn't have anything to do with religious reasons. It's no, it's, it's not just religious. Being cruel to your child. Yeah, exactly. So, but it's, it's very easy, of course, to, to whip up this this sentiment of now are we are being persecuted and uh, they are trying to do this because they are afraid that the the children will grow up and be religious and government is against that. But it's not it's not about that at all. So, in in other news, as we promised at the beginning of the show, I'll be talking about the vaccine crisis in Ukraine. After doing a little bit of research, there was uh, some information available in Russian, so I was having to translate some of it. In uh, some of the articles that dated September 2015, um, I've already found uh, news um, of um, the crisis, of the polio vaccine crisis in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Now, let me just um, backtrack a little bit um, and start by saying that Ukraine actually received a polio-free status in 2002. So, some time ago, things were okay in Ukraine. They had enough vac vaccines, the, the kids were vaccinated, and nobody knew about, well, the polio was eradicated, effectively. Uh, but as the time gone on, and due to some political changes and economic crisis, um, the rates of vaccinations dropped dramatically. They actually say that polio is a poor country disease, and so Ukraine is, is in a bit of a state at the moment. Um, so what happened, what was reported, that two cases of polio were registered in Ukraine of two kids, one four-year-old and one ten-month-old. Uh, and now those two cases were of the um, full-blown polio, so they were paralyzed already. So there was a very bad case of polio, because polio can be also, uh, you know, a mild case where you just feel a bit of fever and then get, get over it. Those two kids were very sick. Even before those cases uh, uh, were diagnosed, uh, the World Health Organization warned Ukraine that their vaccination rates are extremely low and they have to do something about it. Now, in 2014, the overall vaccination rates against polio in Ukraine were 49%, which is not great, but it's okay. Whereas in 2015, it's dropped to just 14% of all the kids were vaccinated. 14? Yeah, it was a, a completely unprecedented un, um, drop. Wow. Um, and of course, as soon as tho those two cases were diagnosed, the World Health Organization rang the alarm bells and uh, the UNICEF and the WHO got together and they've actually provided or try, uh, acquired vaccines for Ukraine. But what I would like to know whether this uh, process will make a difference and uh, stop the spread of polio. Because if they discover two cases of the bad case polio, that means that there is already uh, maybe a couple of hundreds of kids who had the uh, just the you know the, the mild cases of polio and they're spreading the disease. Yeah. It's even possible um, to have to have the, the virus without having any symptoms at all. So, so if Correct. You, yeah. And so they, they'd also be spreading. The only, you know, the only reason why those two kids were picked up is because they, they were you know, very, very sick, basically. Mm. So nobody knows how many other kids are spreading that disease. So we need to watch that space. Um, and uh, the, current, the current rate of vaccination is 14%. Is that what you say? Uh, yes. In 2015, <laughs> it's 14%. And that's why as soon as they got... The diagnosis, they were like, oh my God, you know. 
you know how much is needed for polio um, to be considered uh, no longer being persistent in the population? I'm not sure. It's 80 to 86 percent. Mm. Yeah. Oh, gosh. So they weigh out. Oh, gosh. So this, no, no, no. Hold on this, a second. This this means, it's, it's called the herd immunity threshold. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So, and so that's, vaccination that's, is... That's terrible. That's... Yeah. Yeah, the that's, vaccination is the only way to, to fight polio. And, um, yeah, it's... This is a, a, such a massive neglect on behalf of, of the, uh, the, you know the health organization you create um, I think I think one of the the greatest initiatives about trying to to make a change in people's minds about uh, these terrible diseases that are vaccine preventable diseases is the vaccination chronicles Oh yes, um, did by the the Australian Skeptics Inc. and uh, Richard Saunders. Yeah, uh, both um, Pontus and I have a lot to do with our own languages translation. And it was also translated into Russian as well. I know into it, Russian. It was as well. even dubbed in Russian. It w- they didn't yeah. just uh, yeah. Put I, subtitles, think, I think they the dubbed dubbing it. version that yeah. was really yeah, ambitious. Yeah, it, it had. Yeah. But the thing, the thing is. Um, it's not because people don't believe in vaccines in Ukraine. In Ukraine, it's because they did not have an access to vaccines. There were no vaccines available for people to have. Mm. The, you know, which is a different scenario from anti-vaccination movement, for example, in Australia. Mm. But yeah. So now they they're doing this, you know, uh, they, they firefighting. Okay, we we'll have to like, you know, urgently vaccinate everyone, but. Is it going to work? Well, I mean, fingers crossed it will. Well, it 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 needs some time. It's it needs yeah. a lot of time. That's yeah. for sure. Yeah. So fingers um, crossed. So we'll have to, to watch for the space. effects to take in. Yeah, but uh, thanks very much for the heads up for this uh, piece uh, piece of news because that's, oh, that's a real problem. Um, could be potential disaster, really. Well, that is terrible. Mm. Another terrible thing happened um, just recently in France. Last time, we were talking about clinical trials, the, the old trials campaign and the EMA, um, the European Medicines Agency. Now, it looks like there was a phase one clinical trial in Rennes, Brittany, in France, that went horribly wrong. Six men um, have been hospitalized since the 10th of January for adverse neurological symptoms, shortly after they had been administered an elevated dose of a new drug candidate. One of them was reported brain dead shortly afterwards, and uh, he died on the 17th of January. One of the six patients has since been discharged, and other four are reported to be in a stable condition. However, they seem to face permanent brain damage of different scales. I think we all agree this is just shocking. And this shockwave went through the pharmaceutical industry and the general public as well. In the last two weeks or so, uh, we've seen lots of different reportings on the case on news around the globe. And I have to say, sometimes these reports have been pretty misleading. Um, I saw news articles with journalists who clearly haven't got a clue of what this is all about. And there have been lots of wild guessings as well. And that, I hope we agree, could have a long-term negative effect on how science-based medicine is perceived in the general public. Of course, I'm speculating here. 
but uh, but I, I could even imagine this leading to alternative healers pointing fingers at bad pharma as a real evil that that kills people. But we have to understand that this is not commonplace in the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, these incidents are extremely rare, um, especially compared to, to the number of similar trials conducted throughout Europe. The last case was reported in 2006 uh, from the UK. And if you've read Ben Goldacre's book, uh, Bad Pharma, you've probably heard about it, as um, he, pr- he properly explains in the, the case of the TGN-1412 antibody treatment drug in, uh, in his book. But since then, according to the European Medicines Agency, 12,500 phase one clinical trials took place in the European Union alone without any major incidents. So what could possibly go wrong? Let's try to understand what really happened in Wren. It's not easy for several reasons. First of all, um, there is a certain amount of secrecy surrounding these new drugs and their development uh, for commercial reasons. That seems to be overcome by authorities sooner or later as the investigations uh, go on, but also nobody seems to know what actually happened in these people's brains that caused these adverse reactions that are hemorrhage and necrotic lesions, um, so bleeding and dying tissue, basically, in the brain in five out of six volunteers who had received the highest doses of the drug. So first of all, this was a phase one trial. What does that mean? That is the first stage of testing the new drug candidate in humans, preceded by a long series of trials in different animal groups. The goal of a phase one trial is to find out whether the new drug is safe to take for humans. But what is this drug? Thanks to nature, as well as uh, chemical and engineering news, uh, now we know a bit more about this than uh, when the the news first came out. It is a pain relief drug candidate uh, called BIA102474 that blocks fatty acid amide hydrolase enzymes or FAAH um, enzymes um, in the brain, thus preventing them from from breaking down cannabinoids, some of which are responsible for inducing euphoria. And uh, even the major psychoactive component of marijuana is one of them. I think this latter part confused lots of journalists, as I even read reports that called the drug candidate in question a cannabis-like substance, uh, which is so not the case. This is a classic way of misleading readers, by the way. The drug was developed by Bial, that is a Portuguese pharmaceutical company, and the actual tests were conducted by a company called Biotrial in Rennes on 128 healthy volunteers who were paid almost 2,000 euros each for their participation. It was going on for a while. Since this is the stage in drug development in which the new chemical is given to humans for the first time, in order for the company to be able to start the trials, they have to get all the necessary permissions. The French National Agency for Medicines and Health Product Safety authorized the trial in uh, June 2015, and it actually began on the 9th of July uh, the same year. 90 of the volunteers have been given different doses of the drug and 38 of them received placebo. 
All seemed to have been going well. Nobody showed any adverse reactions to the drug until they started to give these six people a repeated higher dose over the course of several days. Um, a day after the first man started to show symptoms and was hospitalized on the 10th of January, the trial was halted. By that time, he was declared brain dead. Uh, later, others fell ill too, and uh, one man out of the six who received the, the higher doses did not show any of the symptoms. So there is quite a range of reactions to the drug, but we can establish that um, there was something really wrong in the process. By now, uh, probably most of the, the other volunteers have gone through the, the neurological checkups. But Nature reported a couple of days ago that 28 out of the 84 people who received the drug have been found not to be affected at all. So there are lots of speculations regarding the causes of this tragedy. The problem is not even the authorities know exactly what went wrong. We do know that there is a certain amount of risk in administering the drug to humans even after it was found safe in animal trials, as there could be differences, much like the ones that uh, cause um, certain pathogens to make humans sick while uh, not having an effect on other animals at all, that they are carrying them. For a, for a while, the, the main issue was to acquire the, the, the actual structure of the molecule. The developer, uh, Bial, didn't seem to be the most collaborative in that sense at the beginning, but now the issue seems to be resolved and the structure is public, or, or at least the structure of the molecule that was mentioned in the protocol released uh, by Biotrial, the, the company that conducted the actual trials. Um, the clinical trial protocol notes that uh, the company tested the molecule on different animals, uh, mice, rats, dogs, and monkeys, for quote, effects on the heart, kidneys, and gastrointestinal tract, among other pharmacological and toxicological evaluations. So experts now seem to question the, the, the design of the phase one trial, uh, mentioning especially the lack of an interval between the first and subsequent volunteers to receive the increased doses. This practice of uh, not increasing the doses for all participants simultaneously has been in place in trials all over the world since the tragic incident in uh, 2006 uh, in order to minimize the damage caused in case of a serious adverse uh, effect um, occurring after the first administration of the drug. So they say it should have been sequentially administered, but, but that still doesn't give us an explanation to the mechanism through, through which tr the tragedy happened. Some scientists uh, say it could have been due to a so-called off-target action by the molecule, and computer simulations and independent tests are currently being conducted to find out more. Even the FDA, uh, the United States Food and Drug Administration, uh, now stepped into the picture, and, and their experts said there have been several FAAH inhibitors uh, tested in the U.S. Uh, without any similar incidents. So if it is not a manufacturing error, uh, there has to be something in this molecule that resulted in these uh, severe effects in higher doses. So... This is basically what's publicly available information about this case, but the investigation that started soon after the company halted the trials will definitely go on for 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 months, uh, probably several months to come. And 
Hopefully, there will be a way to know what exactly happened in this tragic line of events in Rennes, uh, France. What's following here is just a short preview of a much longer interview recorded in Malmö in Sweden with Jane Novella of the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. This was recorded in front of a live audience during a local Skeptics in the Pub event, and the plan is to release the full-length interview as a standalone episode next week. Let's start with the Skeptics' Guide to Universe. Jay, what is it? Let's pretend that some of us in here has never heard the Skeptics' Guide to the Universe. How would you describe it? Uh, well, I guess at its core, it's a, it's a, a bunch of friends talking about science and critical thinking and it's largely based on our friendship we, we definitely dive into the, the critical topics but the thing about the show that keeps us recording it and the thing about the show that i think keeps people listening is the fact that we have such a warm relationship with each other it's partly a celebration of science and partly a celebration of our relationship mm. steve is my my nemesis and my brother <laughs> he uh you know all kidding aside steve is is without a doubt like my primary intellectual hero. Like I know him in a way that most people don't know him, and he is—he's um, he's a remarkable person. He's very intelligent. He's a—he's a clinical neurologist, um, and he's—he's he's our ringleader. I mean, Steve makes the show happen. He does all the post-production. He makes all, all the editorial decisions on the show. Um, so he's the glue that keeps this happening. I mean, it's ten years. I mean, it's—it's mm. it's a phenomenal amount of time. It's a huge. Uh, sacrifice for all of us. I mean, you know, there's time I don't spend with my family. I have two kids now, and I don't see them because of the podcast. <laughs> I'm not complaining, but I mean, it is a sacrifice. And Steve keeps us motivated and keeps it going. So this started really even before the podcast. You you were skeptics even before you uh, found out about podcasting. So when I was 14 years old, my sister was going to college, and she went away for a semester and came back a born again Christian. So. Does everybody know what that is? Yeah. Right? Yeah. So it was like she had a remarkable personality change. And and Steve, now when we look back on it, Steve says that he was already becoming a skeptic, even though he didn't know there were, he didn't know the, the formal name and that there was any kind of community happening. But for me, my real introduction was my sister got affected by this weird thing, which was this religion. And I just started fighting against it. Like it was emotional because I didn't have the same person in my life anymore. She was a totally different person. And it was the beginning of a thousand debates at dinner and in the middle of the day, you know, she could, she would come home and she'd say, they can see heaven with a telescope. <laughs> and we would just be like cats jumping on her. Like, what are you saying? And what do you mean? And, you know, so we're starting to research. Like, how can she possibly say that? What are they, what are they actually saying? And, you know, trying to, like, t take it, you know, tear down her, her statement. And I think that was a, a big, like, proving grounds for us. So that was, like, unfortunately, it's my sister. I feel bad because she took a lot of abuse from us because we were sharpening our sword against that religion. Like, and it, it was a big push for us to become, to become skeptics and critical thinkers and everything. So I'm going to formally apologize to her right now on your podcast. <laughs> Sandra, I love you. Sorry. Um, but that was the beginning. And then we started to, you know, we discovered Randy and Carl Sagan. And we started reading their books. And that was huge. You know, we, re we read Demon Haunted World as a family almost. You know, mm -hmm. we were just talking about it. And um, that book had a massive effect on us. Mm -hmm. 
we invited Randy to come speak once, and he accepted, and we mm-hmm. were shocked because we were fans of seeing on seeing Randy on TV and you know traveling around the world. And the guy like came to Boston, and we had a, a lecture with him. Huh. So we became friends with Randy right away. I mean, he's he's a he's an awesome awesome person. I mean, just like there's so much I could say about him, but very giving and you know very open with his time. And I think Randy like helped us also set the tone of what kind of people we wanted to be as activists. Um, and then from there, it was, we started, like, an early idea of Skeptics in the Pug, but it was more like just lectures. You know, we, it wasn't drinking. It was just more of, like, okay, we're going to go to this library. We're going to have a lecture. And we would get 20 or 30 people, and we had about 300 people on our mailing list, and we would send out a newsletter. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then the podcasting thing happened years later. Um, the early shows were a little dry, but we warmed up, I think, pretty quickly, and that we started to get our... our hands wrapped around the technology and I, I think by the end of year one it's really that's when it started to really gel and things started yeah. to take off yeah. I guess you got a hard time from Steve from not being in the next week's uh, episode now because you're on two weeks trip. in a row yeah he freaked out when I called him up and I'm like so I'm going to be in Sweden for work and um, I just don't know Steve and he's like no 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 we could do it and he's like so how far ahead are you going to be I'm like six hours and he's like well that's two in the morning for you now do you think you could like last until about three I'm like no I better go to work <laughs> like no I can't I can't do it and he's just so like to the bitter end I'm like on my way to the airport and he's like maybe we can record some stuff this weekend maybe I can get you know get you a little earlier like at the end of your day and towards the end of my day and you know, I'm like how about I just don't record for two weeks you know what I mean <laughs> so uh, looking forward what's uh, coming up what can we look forward to when it comes to the Skeptics Guide to the Universe or the North England no the New, Nets, Eng- yeah, New, New England, England Skeptic Society well we are so we're spending a lot of energy with our conference which is mm-hmm. called Nexus Um, and that that's in New York City, April, May of every year. Um, so I, I'm finding that that is great activism. You know, when you get to meet people in person and, and get them um, in front of speakers, I mean, you know this, you, you've been to tons of conferences. The podcast, I mean, we're, we're going to keep going. We made a five-year commitment uh, during, when was this? Not too long ago. We did the 10-hour show, right? Mm-hmm. That 10-hour live show. And I asked everyone, will you commit to another five years? And we did. So we're going to continue to go. We're going to continue to evolve the show and try new segments. Mm-hmm. Um, we're really going to be pushing to get more interviews this year. It's very time-consuming. You, you probably know this now, right? It's really hard to get interviews. I mean, it takes a lot of time on the phone, and you got to, you know, it's, it's a big rigmarole to get people to be able to do it, and then you got to help them with headsets, and it's it's a big deal. You know, more sometimes they just it. show up in the pub, and you can. That's right. The yeah, they're coming here for business, and they're 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 calling you saying, "I'm bored and lonely. Can I?" Can you? Uh, that's what happened, by the way. I called I called my buddy right here, and uh, I said, "I'm going to stay in your hotel. Get me the best price you can." And entertain me because I'm I'm going to be alone for two weeks. <laughs> so Jay is not here to entertain you. You are here to entertain him. Yes. <laughs> and I believe I owe all of you five dollars. <laughs> <laughs> so Jay Novella, everybody. In the full interview, Jay goes on to talk about everything from religion to music and his obsession with Star Wars blasters. So stay tuned for that in the next episode. So, um, I think um, it is time to move on to the logical fallacies segment. 
And this time, there is a very interesting topic you mm. prepared with Yelena. Yep. What is it? Okay, so uh, we'll, we'll be talking about um, something called unfalsifiability or also known as um, untestability fallacy. Um, basically, um, it's um, when um, someone confident, uh, confidently asserting that a theory or hypothesis is true or false, even though the theory or hypothesis cannot possibly be contradicted by uh, an observation or the outcome of any physical experiment, um, usually without strong evidence or good reasons. Um, making unfalsifiable claims uh, is a way to leave the realm of rational disc discourse since unfalsifiable claims are often faith-based uh, and not founded on evidence and reason. Now, to demonstrate this uh, fallacy, I've got a great example, <laughs> um, and it goes like that. I have tiny invisible unicorns living in my asshole. Can I say asshole? <laughs> or shall I say <laughs> Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Okay. I have tiny invisible unicorns living in my asshole. Unfortunately, this cannot be detected by any kind of scientific equipment. So here you go. What are you going to do about that, hey? Um, Laugh at it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Apart from well, I'm not going to check. So no. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but you already stay. So you, you already, in advance of that, you stay. <laughs> you state it cannot be scientific, uh, detected by any kind because of Because nobody equipment. wants to. <laughs> yeah. So the the thing is, while it may actually be uh, a fact <laughs> that the tiny invisible uh, mythological creatures are occupying my uh, bottom, um, it is a theory that is constructed so it cannot be falsified in any way. Mm. Therefore, should not be seriously considered without significant evidence. Another example, maybe less uh, funny, but um, also applies to this uh, fallacies. Priests can literally turn wine into the blood of Jesus. Now, sh surely that w we can examine the liquid and see if, if it uh, changes the chemicals uh, ch chemically. But uh, as you would probably hear from the believers, uh, because the transubstantiation is not about physical or chemical change, but a change in substance, which of course is not material change, uh, it's impossible to falsify. Furthermore, the claim is not that it might be happening, but it certainly is happening, adding to the uh, fallaciousness of the claim. And the only evidence for this claim is some ambiguous verses in the Bible. Mm -hmm. And they are so ambiguous that over a billion Christians don't uh, subscribe to the belief uh, mm -hmm. that this transubstantiation occurs. Mm -hmm. So now, there is a, a little warning that comes with it. Um, all unfalsifiable claims are not fallacious, of course. Uh, they are just unfalsifiable. As long as proper skepticism is retained and proper evidence is given, you know, it uh, could be a legitimate, fo a legitimate form of reasoning. Um, and one should never assume uh, you must be right simply because you can't be proven wrong. So that's the lesson to take home today. Yeah. Have, have you guys read The Logic of Scientific Discovery by uh, Karl Popper? No. no. No, no. Uh, yeah, he was uh, elaborating um, a lot on um, the idea of uh, falsification, so that 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 he asserts that um, a scientific theory is legitimate only if, in theory, it can be falsified. So it's a very it's it's a very important idea within scientific skepticism yeah but if you can't if you can't 
falsify it. You're basically left to the argument, uh, yes, there is, and no, I don't believe you, and you can't get anywhere. So, yeah, that's it. That's it. So this is this is this is what distinguishes a scientific theory from a non-scientific theory. Let's move on to the short interview I recorded at Wikipedia Science Conference with Brian Kelly. Hello, um, this is Andras Pinte from uh, Guerrilla Skepticism on Wikipedia and uh, the Hungarian Skeptic Society from Wikipedia Science Conference uh, from London. And here with me is uh, Brian Kelly, uh, who just gave a talk on um, developing an ethical approach to uh, using Wikipedia. Brian, please tell me something about yourself and what you do, how you're connected to Wikipedia. Okay, so uh, I think my claim to fame was in uh, 1992, I discovered the web and set up a, a web service at the University of Leeds, which was the first institutional web service in the UK higher education community. There were only about 50 organisations around the world at that time, and I said, this is the future, and people were sceptics, because <laughs> they said, no, the future is gopher. And okay, so I was right then. And so um, I got involved in advocacy and promoting the web very much in the early days. And then in 1996, I got a job at UConn at the University of Bath as UK Web Focus. And this was to promote the benefits of the web in teaching and learning and research across the UK's higher education community. So UK Web Focus was my job title. Sadly, my organisation closed down recently, so I had another job for 18 months, but that finished two months ago. So I'm now an independent consultant at UK Web Focus Limited. Which is my my the name. And uh, how are you connected to the the community of Wikipedia editors? During my time as UK Web Focus, I was an early adopter of various technologies to explore the benefits of teaching and learning and research. So that was when I created my first page, which was about my hobby, rapper saw dancing, in 2004. And so I thought Wikipedia should be important to our community. But I was told by our funders back then that no, it's not a proper, you know, source. So I think back in those days there was scepticism from the library community and the higher education community. And I was still a, a fan, I thought it had value, but didn't really do much because it wasn't really approved of. But then in, um, I think it was about two years ago, when I was about to be made redundant, I thought, no, it is important. And then... I think JISC started to rediscover that it was important. So I got involved in doing a bit more advocacy and training, uh, particularly within a, a science uh, context and a research context. And so for me, for me, Wikipedia was just one of those portfolio of new services which are changing the way we might be doing research. So it's not just Wikipedia. Twitter is important. Um, other wiki environments are important. Blogging is important, you know, open science, the open notebook. So for me, it was part of the, the range of tools and services and approaches and cultures which can be valuable for researchers. 
which is extensively covered um, in this conference, uh, how it's not only Wikipedia, but uh, the, the whole Wikimedia ecosystem that, that, that some people call it. Well, I'm actually saying it's more than that. So there's Wiki. So it's even more than that. There's Wikipedia. <laughs> Wikipedia okay. is important. There's the Wikipedia uh, portfolio projects as well, and there was obviously a lot of interest in the Wikidata side of things. Yeah. What I'm saying is there are other tools beyond the Wiki Star environment which are important, like Twitter. Right. So one of the things I've been saying to researchers, particularly early career researchers, is here are ways that you could use those type of technologies to raise the visibility of your research, get feedback from your peers, you know, help raise the impact of, of your work. These are a set of tools. So I would say I'm not a Wikipedia, and that's the only answer, and that's my life, I'm saying Wikipedia and Wikimedia projects are part of those portfolio of services which are important to the research community. Yeah, and then uh, if I remember well, you um, described yourself uh, in your introduction more of, um, of a science communicator than... than Yeah, then uh, we, you are partly Wikipedian, you are partly many other things, yeah. but mainly you, you describe yourself as a science communicator that involves both Wikipedia, um, the Wikidata, Wikimedia, and, and of course using tools like Twitter. Yeah, yeah. So, so my role now is to looking to support the community, learning from my experiences. So I have done some research myself in web accessibility is the most uh, significant area of, of, of research and I'm looking to say here are the ways in which I've raised the visibility of that work and the impact of that work using various tools and how that might be applicable to the wider research community. Fantastic and uh, I'd like to uh, go on to uh, your topic uh, the ethical approach. Um, the thing that you mentioned the most was um, conflict of interest and how it can be uh, tackled um, and how, how Wikipedians should deal with, with, with the problem of conflict of interest. So what's your take on, on this, something that, that can be useful to Wikipedia editors? So it was interesting, when I was first reading about the Wikipedia principles and the conflict of interest, there were some simple guidelines which says, don't edit or create things that you might have some personal involvement with. And I thought, hang on, but that's what I want to do. So it's, it's interesting that I mentioned my research in web accessibility. I've not actually, and I think this is significant papers, um, and it's in alongside our research there's a British standard, the BS8878 was developed, which was related to our work. So I would argue it's, it is significant. But I've never been brave enough to add a link to my own paper there. <laughs> so it was partly because I knew I'm talking with Wikipedia community and I'd be a bit worried if I was exposed as promoting my own, my own research. So what that means is there's a gap there. So I was thinking, we need to do something. We need to address that conflict of interest uh, challenge. And it was really, when I was hearing some of the talks yesterday, this conference has been brilliant, by the way, and my talk that I prepared two days ago was going to finish off and say, here are some of the issues, we need to discuss this further, blah, blah, blah. And then yesterday, it kind of came to me, thanks to uh, a guy called Alex, who was talking about what he's doing in, uh, uh, in his uh, European biomatics uh, context. Uh, and also Andy Mablet, who was talking about how the cultural heritage sector, the GLAM community of galleries, libraries, archives and museums, are providing advice to address the challenges 
in their sector, which is to say we need to raise the visibility of our cultural heritage, of the digital information about that, that cultural heritage, and it's the curators know about their stuff and care about their stuff and are passionate about their stuff. But that's not disinterested if you're passionate about the stuff. And basically, the page that Andy uh, showed me, which is WP colon COI, you can get to that page using the Wikipedia shortcode, comes up with some things about transparency. If you are passionate about a particular interest, declare it so that other people can are made aware of your potential subconscious biases and prejudices. Um, and so that's what you, you, that's you what mean by an ethical approach? Yes, yeah. yeah. So that's what I'm proposing, that maybe this is what we do. Because I don't think it can be, we won't touch anything that we work with. Because that kind of doesn't work and it conflicts with the, move, with the move towards funding bodies, the Wellcome Trust, saying yeah. a particular proportion of a grant to do some work should be used to fund the public outreach and engagement with the work. Wikipedia will have an important role to that. So is that paid advertising? You know, we're paying you to write a Wikipedia article about that, that stuff. And so this is where I'm saying there needs to be some guidelines so that we don't tread this you know, difficult line to draw. And so what we should be looking at are the Initially, I thought we just need a page which says this is what you should do and this is what you shouldn't do. But the danger is that's too bland, and if it's too specific, it won't cater for all of the different types of approaches. Oh, yeah. So this is where I'm saying we should learn from patterns of use. And so this is where Alex's talk yesterday was just so good when he said he cares, he's passionate about proteins, but even more passionate about NRA, whatever that is. And he's created loads of pages about this, or the colleagues in his own institution. Oh, you're talking about RNA. Yeah. RNA, RNA, <laughs> sorry. Yeah. Um, his colleagues have created a load of pages about this. The wider community have created a load of pages about this. And the Wikipedia community will delete the stuff. Yeah. And that's fine. And what happens at the end is some really solid, significant content is created. But this is by the community. So the Wikipedia guidelines, it strike me, are aimed at the individual. You should not update an article where you've got a uh, conflict of interest. But maybe those can be resolved by the community working together. And so that's the thing that I really got out of, out of the, the event. And it's been great. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I think that sums, sums it up pretty well. Thank you very much for your time. And thanks for the great talk as well. Okay, thank and, you. And uh, this has been Andras Pinter talking to Ryan Kelly. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right, uh, Pontus, do you want to shed some light on uh, another thing that's really wrong in Europe? Yes, right. Today's prize for being really wrong goes to a workers' union in Sweden called Unionen and several Swedish cities because they have purchased leadership courses from a Norwegian company which is based on so-called communicology. So it's something <laughs> about c communication, right? But they call it communicology. Uh, and they've yeah. spent millions of euro out on this. Uh, and this is taxpayers' money and this is money from the union which are also sort of common money that should go to better things. So what is communicology? Communicology is a theory developed by two Norwegians and it's based on so-called NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming, which is a thoroughly debunked, debunked idea. NLP was based on the idea that you, if you move your muscles in certain ways, it stimulates the brain 
uh, and it makes the brain perform better in certain ways. And as I understand it, it was very hot in the 70s and 80s. But has and 90s and, and 2000s. Ah, st- thank well, you, very you know, much. bad ideas never goes away. Latvia, Latvia was a bit delayed in uh, mm. getting grips with stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> but in in serious circles, it was abandoned because it simply doesn't seem to work. Uh, but so, what is communicology then? Uh, uh, it is so-called leadership courses, and uh, people have been among other things, being crawling around on the floor in an attempt to communicate with each other through their bodies. Uh, Another exercise has been that you sit in groups of three and the person in the middle looks at the picture and the two others hold this other person's hand and try to guess what the person in the middle is looking at. (laughs) So so it's real real nonsense, really. So, So for the last three years... Uh, around 50 local cities have had their officials uh, spend over 1 million euro doing these uh, courses. In the city of Norrköping alone, they have spent 400,000 euros on this. Even more money has been spent by Unionen, this uh, workers' union. Uh, they spent almost 2.5 million euros on training 900 employees, and 50 of them have become certified communicologists well um, i i smell i smell fish now mm-hmm. don't you think this whoever the invented this urology course um uh, actually <laughs> um were in uh in the same boat or in the same group of people who then mm-hmm. later on bought it so mm-hmm. in other words there's like a little mafia urology mafia going on and they all exchanging uh, money and now Obviously, the urologists are million dollars or whatever yeah. euros better off, um, and everybody's happy. I, it really doesn't smell very good, does it? <laughs> okay. The really offending bit is that when you ask this company for for scientific information or scientific grounds, does this really work? They say no, we can't tell you because it's a you know company secret, etc. But the proof is that we've sold five thousand courses of this. And uh, since we've sold so much, it must work. Ah, but this is the uh, fallacy from the po- popularity, isn't it? Ah, we you got know? on your home turf then. Yes, it's a fallacy. Uh, oh, absolutely. yeah. Because, because, because we, we sold so it's many. Argument from popular. popularity. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Must be right. Yes, must be right. Exactly. It's not. So it must be right because yeah. we, we, we were able to sell it. So for spending millions of euro in tax money and workers' union funds on pseudoscientific nonsense... The local cities and Unionen in Sweden gets the prize for being really wrong. Are you annoyed by misinformation spreading like crazy? And you want to stop the flood of nonsense coming from all directions? Go to Wikipedia, as do all those millions out there. Did you know there's an edit button on all Wikipedia articles? Why don't you go and hit that button to start making the world's largest online encyclopedia a more reliable source of information? If you're specifically interested in skeptical topics, come and join us at Guerrilla Skepticism on Wikipedia, an international endeavor to change the world for the better, word by word. There are many ways you can contribute. You just need to start. You speak several languages, all the more reason to join us. We provide training and all the help you need. 
If you want to make a change, there's a nice community waiting for you out there. Contact us at gsowteam at gmail.com, visit our website that's gorillaskeptics.com, or check out the Gorilla Skepticism on Wikipedia Facebook page. If you, skeptics in Europe, have an organization or project to promote, if you put together a radio spot of the similar kind, we are very happy to run it on the show, just like we did it with uh, GSOW. So please send us radio spots to promote your organization or project. Now, Yelena. Huh. I'm getting so excited oh, no, about don't. what you, you might have for us here. This is time for our true or false segment. All right. So, uh, as usual, I have three items for you guys, two true, one false. And um, you'll have to guess. Okay. Item number one. The uh, scientists from the uh, Newcastle University uh, in UK showed that cows who have names given... Um, they give more milk than cows that are nameless. Item number two, the residents of several villages in northwest Spain were alarmed when they looked out of their window one day to find that the rain was blood red. And item number three, the scientists of University of Amsterdam in Netherlands discovered that symptoms of asthma can be treated with a roller coaster ride. Guys, um, I, I will choose who will go first, and I think Pontus should go first. Mm-hmm. Okay, cows with names give more milk than cows without names. Uh, I guess if you have a name, you're better cared for, so uh, maybe that's true. Don't know. Uh, several villages in north northwest Spain has been alarmed when the rain was red. I've s- Red rain... Maybe there are uh, things coming from, like, the desert in uh, in Sahara, something like that. The University of Amsterdam uh, discovered that you can treat asthma with a roller coaster ride. Oh, that sounds fun. Uh, but I still think that, that that's probably the least uh, believable. So I'll go for number three. That's the false one. All right. What about you, Andres? I have no idea. Um, to be honest, I'm most skeptical about the first one. Cows who have names give more milk than cows that are nameless. Uh, I don't know. Um, Northwest Spain. Well, I could imagine some kind of uh, red sand thing being mixed up with rain and that that falling down on people and and people going crazy about it and this is so weird and i i, I and i want that to be true because I, I like it when people especially um um i i, I believe in spain I, I don't know about northern spain but i believe in spain people tend to be more religious so that might have felt if if it was true if it's if it's true that might have felt terrible like this this is the apocalypse uh, so this is the end of the world mm. <laughs> kind of feeling that, that they must have had. So I want that to be true. Just because I'm 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 a nasty person. 
And, uh, well, it's nice to know. <laughs> yeah, so I'm very skeptical about the cows. I I see no way of that being true. I mean, I mean, I I, I don't see a mechanism that that could cause that. Apart from, uh, probably it could. If the cows who have names are taken better care of. So they are feeling much more comfy. So they, I don't know. Um, the third one, University of Amsterdam scientists discovered that symptoms of asthma can be treated with a roller coaster ride. And for me, that works because I can imagine somehow adrenaline that is released on a roller coaster ride being ef- effective against asthma, at least for a shorter period of time. So at the moment. So I'm going to go with the number one, the cows. That's, to me, the one that, that, that's most likely to be, to be false. Right, so there is no consensus. Therefore, uh, I shall be taking these in order. So the first item, the cows that given names give more milk than cows that, that are, remain nameless. And this item actually is true. Yay! Oh, now, Fucking in uh, the the two uh, two people we have to thank for the contribution to this is Catherine Douglas and Peter Rowlinson for of Roman Newcastle University. Yes, yeah, so it is to do with them being cared more and paid attention more, etc. Uh, and therefore, if you being <laughs> loved, you being more uh, productive. It sounds like an Ig Nobel so Prize to me. So I got the explanation me. right. I just didn't get the answer right. Yeah, okay. that's no. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great, wonderful. So, uh, okay, and then the item number two, the uh, it rained blood that day in Spain. Um, so this, uh, this item is in fact false, um, and what? it was um, based on another item um, that was actually quite uh, interesting. This item was published um, relatively recently. It said that... It didn't actually rain blood, as in the rain was normal, you know, water color, i.e. no color. But what happened uh, when it fell uh, into the uh, basins and and the the, um, fountains, it turned red within just a few hours. And apparently it was due to fungus in the water. Mm, Fungi? Oh, sorry, fungi. Yes. So it was it was it was fungi who caused the the actual yeah, so coloring the of the water. That's right. The researchers examined wow. the water and found pra- pra- particles of Haematococcus pluvialis. Um, it's it's a free f- a green freshwater algae that turns red in times of, of chemical stress. And uh, you know that name is very telling. Hema, hema because of the hemoglobin. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, it has something to do with the, with, the, with the blood. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. So it didn't actually rain blood, but the water did turn blood. And I thought, oh, okay, this is a good article to hmm. twist a little bit to hmm. use as my fake item. Nice. And therefore, uh, the last one is true, where it said that the roller coaster rides can help the, the um, deal with asthma. So the current study uh, assesses how negative and positive stress is related to uh, uh, the um, dyspnea perception. 
not sure what that is. Um, they had 25 young women with medically diagnosis of severe asthma and 15 uh, matched controls. Uh, stress was induced during repeated roller coaster rides and results showed that negative emotional stress and blood pressure peaked just before and positive emotional stress and heart uh, beat uh, peaked immediately after roller coaster rides. And uh, uh, dyspnea, ah, oh, so this is probably asthma, uh, uh, thing. In women with asthma was higher just before then immediately after the roller coaster rides. Um, so, yes. Dyspnea, isn't it the, this ability just to, to breathe? Yeah, so I think this is what happens when you get yeah. asthma attack, you can't yeah. breathe, yeah. Hmm, okay. So basically, you fooled, fooled, you fooled both us. Of us. Yeah, yeah. I have nice. fooled you, and I am actually really quite pleased with myself. Uh, if <laughs> I may say so. Um, okay. Yeah, All right. We with a good reason. With we'll good get reason. you next time. <laughs> All right. Um, thank you very much. Lovely. Um, do you also have a nice quote for us? I do indeed. Yeah. Today's quote is from Albert Einstein. The important thing is to not stop questioning. Curiosity has its own reasons for existence. One cannot help but be in awe when he contemplates the mystery of uh, eternity, of life, of the marvelous structure of reality. It is enough if one tries merely to comprehend a little of this mystery each day. Hmm. There you go. Couldn't agree more. Oh, beautiful. Beautiful. Well, fantastic. Thank you very much, Elena. Okay. And... Thank you very much to you as well, Pontus. Thank you. Thank you, Anderson Pontus. Thank you. It's been a pleasure again. Cannot wait to be here, back here again for the the upcoming episodes. So take care. Bye. Bye. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Kisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe Utrecht Freethinkers, that's, <laughs> that's a difficult one. Yeah. Yeah. Utrecht Freethinkers, oh boy. I might record a few things and, uh, and then I'll let you know where to put it. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking like a tough guy, right? We can let you believe that, yeah? You're looking like something, <laughs> all right, Andrish. <laughs> Neurolinguist... Lin, Neurolinguistic... Linguistic. Linguistic. It's like linguini. It's like the pasta, right? Communicology. <laughs> <laughs> Communicology. Nah.
Okay. Communicology. Yeah, that's right. Communicology. Yeah. I still think it's about pasta. Yeah. 